All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Monster Soundwave, an unofficial D&D podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Evan and Joe again, and we are talking about the cleric. But first, there's a little bit of news, a little bit of housekeeping here. All right. So a couple of new things. Critical Role, Call of the Nether Deep. Uh, that comes out March 15th. There's been a little bit more information out there. They're starting to do the internet press circuit, uh, talking to some different websites and stuff. There's not a lot to explain here, but we did get maybe a little bit of information based on uh, the errata from Volo's Guide, where they cut out a bunch of lore for different uh, races that there are multiple cities that are essentially run by these previously quote-unquote evil races. So there's a drow city, a city that's primarily populated by gnolls and goblins and orcs. Um, And these are not strongholds or evil cities. These are actual places that the parties will be going through and going to in the adventure that's out laid out in that book. In addition to that, there's also uh, some new information about there about uh, this book providing rules for a rival party of NPCs. Uh, So that's pretty interesting. I think that that might be a fun mechanic. Uh, Guys, any thoughts on these? Evan, we'll go to you first. I think the uh, rival NPC party is a pretty cool thought. Um, I think most DMs have probably used similar concepts before, so it'll be interesting to see how they approach it in the uh, in the book. Beyond that, um, reserve my final opinion until I actually see what's in the book. Sounds good. Joe, any thoughts about Critical Role Call of the Netherdeep? Uh, well, considering I've been trying to catch up on Critical Role for a while and i'm still only in i think like episode 12 of their first campaign i've got a bit of a ways to go but uh anything else that i know about it looks cool from the cover art and i know that people are very happy about critical role so yeah have to see what it is when it comes out that's true um also morning kind of presents monsters of the multiverse which is included in the like super special edition gift set uh, that just recently dropped. Uh, that gift set also comes with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Uh, but Mordenkind Presents Monsters of the Multiverse will drop as its own book May 17th. Um, so that date is locked in. And it includes over 30 playable races. Uh, And what it says is that it brings all of the setting agnostic races into one book. So we'll see what does and doesn't make it. Obviously, things like um, orcs and goblins and and a, a lot of the other stuff that's been covered in some of the other monster manuals or Volo's Guide to Monsters will be there. Uh, It also includes over 250 monsters, uh, and it uh, adds a bunch of lore. And it re the words that they use are it refocuses the stories on the D and D multiverse rather than on any particular world. So you won't see a lot of stuff about like 
creatures that are exclusively native to somewhere like Eberron or Ravnica. But it sounds like general Dungeons and Dragons um, monsters will be covered in this book and that the lore will be more focused on their place in the multiverse uh, and less on how they interact with one particular setting. So, uh, Joe, any thoughts about Morningkind Presents? I'm excited for this probably more than the Critical Role book, but that's primarily because of being a DM that I like having effectively new toys to torture my party members with and giving them a lot of updated character options. I know that's definitely a lot of things that uh, many players out there will be looking forward to. What I'm curious about will be how many uh, are these going to be like updated player characters? If it's a matter of like, Hey, all these races that were like in, um, Tasha's or Xanathar's or other campaign books, if they're all consolidating into this one, or if they're just kind of like refleshing them a little bit, or if it's actually bringing any new races to the table as well. Yeah, we'll have to see. I know that there was that unearthed arcana a while back that was like, um, like player characters of the multiverse or races of the multiverse. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's if some of those made it into this book. That seems like it would be about the right timeline. Uh, but we should have more information in the next couple of days as people crack open the uh, as people get the the gift set and and reveal what's in there. So we'll have to see on that. Evan, thoughts about Mornkind presents. Echo Joe as a DM, I'm very excited about it. But again, you know reserving final opinions and you know my thoughts until i actually get the book in my hands uh i know there have been some leaks but um i haven't even looked at them yet again i kind of want to wait till the actual book comes out so yeah i gotta get it in my hand that's my preference you know exactly so we'll talk about that more in may once we've all got our hands on it uh but for tonight we're talking about the cleric uh classic player character class here um the ultimate healer slash uh frontline martial character uh similar to the paladin the paladin is maybe more focused on the fighter aspect of things with spellcasting as a secondary whereas the cleric is more of a spellcaster with uh uh being a frontline fighter as a secondary but they're a very versatile class, and so we'll get into it here. We'll talk about the base uh, rules for the cleric first, and then we'll get into the many, many domains uh, that player characters have an option for. Um, so starting off, clerics are proficient with light armor, medium armor, shields. For weapons, they're proficient with simple weapons. They're not proficient with any tools. Their saving throws are Wisdom and Charisma, which is really good because a lot of spells target Wisdom and Charisma. Probably only Dexterity is targeted more often than those two. And then for their skills, kind of mediocre uh, skill set here to choose from, but there's a lot of ways to add skills to your proficiency bonuses here. Uh, they 
you get to choose two from history, insight, medicine, persuasion, and religion. And their hit die is a D8. So uh, a little squishier than some of the other frontline classes, but overall uh, an average hit die. Um, what do you guys think about these uh, starting proficiencies here? Personally, uh, not too bad. Uh, I mean, when you think of the idea of a cleric, like the skill choices from where uh, you would pick from, makes pretty good sense of it. You're, they're most likely somebody that has studied, obviously, like religion, majority of clerics. If you look at like real life compa uh, components of like patrons or uh, priests and of the sort for different religions. They're very persuasive or insightful into everyday conversation. And in general, they, you know, it would be expected that they have some concept of medicine. Sure. Evan thoughts. Uh, I mean, uh, pretty basic stuff. Um, it, it, you know, it's nothing really to, um, be impressed by, but then again, I mean, Really, the big thing it comes down to is that domain you choose. Yeah, and that's something that we'll talk about is where a lot of the other classes choose their specialization at third level. Um, clerics pick their domain at first level, so they do get some first level bonuses, either in skills or um, more weapon and armor proficiencies. So we'll get into that stuff uh, when we get to the domains. Uh, at second level, clerics get the channel divinity power, and uh, they'll get one channel divinity here from that they all get, and then they'll also get one from their domain. So uh, channel divinity turn undead is the power that all clerics get. And as an action, you present your holy symbol and speak a prayer censuring the undead. Each undead that can see or hear you within 30 feet of you must make a wisdom saving throw. The creature fails its saving throw. It is turned for one minute or until it takes any damage. Turned creature must spend its turns trying to move as far away from you as it can, and it can't willingly move to a space within 30 feet of you. It also can't take reactions. For its action, it can use only the dash action or try to escape from an effect that prevents it from moving. There's nowhere to move. The creature can use the dodge action. So this is not a uh, this is not like a a bad uh, skill at all. However, it could be something that just sits on your character sheet for a long time. Uh, Evan, let's go to you. How do you feel about turn undead being a universal uh, uh, ability for the cleric? Uh Honestly, it comes down to the campaign that you're in. I mean, if you're playing in a campaign that you're fighting a lot of undead, you're going to get a lot of mileage out of this. If, on the other hand, you have fight, you have two encounters with undead in the entire length of your campaign, like you said, it's just going to sit there in your character sheet. And then there's going to be, you know, a moment where you're like, oh my God, I can actually finally use this feature. Which is why, you know, a lot of the domains have alternate uses for it. Or uh, some of the domains, I think have uh, alternate uses for it. But uh, ultimately, undead are one of those enemies that can kind of show up in any setting. 
and they're that rare monster that exists at pretty much every CR level. So it makes sense of it being kind of a universal thing. So I kind of get it, but really it comes down to how often the DM wants to throw undead at the players, which speaking as a DM who's notorious for throwing a lot of undead, if you're in one of my games, you would be within rights to expect to use Channel Divinity a fair amount. Sounds good. All right, Joe, anything to add to that, or should we move on to their fifth level power, Destroy Undead? I mean, both of the, as you, as you just uh, mentioned, Destroy Undead is also kind of that, like, class-defining characteristic of a cleric, where if you're thinking of it, the only other class that really comes to mind when, if you have something that wants to fight undead, is a paladin or a cleric, most likely. And kind of like Evan was mentioning, though, is that if you're in a game where you don't really have any undead, the ability sits there, doesn't do anything. In a similar sense, destroy undead, I personally think, feels a little weak even getting it at fifth level when you can only destroy something that's of, you know, a CR half, uh, one, one, two, uh, which by the time you're fighting things at fifth level, probably maybe a little bit higher than a CR one, uh, CR half. Yeah. Um, so destroy undead, basically at fifth level, you get the ability when you use your turn undead feature, uh, a creature who fails the saving throw is instantly destroyed. If it's challenge rating is at or below a certain threshold. And those challenge ratings are at fifth level, it's half or lower, eighth level, it's one or lower, 11th is two, 14th is three, and 17th is four. So, um, you know, this maybe is great if all of a sudden a horde of skeletons, you know, starts coming after you in a cemetery or something. But the reality is it's not going to be super effective. Um, at fifth level, uh, or really throughout most of it. Uh, Evan, any thoughts about destroy undead? Uh, again, I mean, it's, it's kind of a niche ability that, um, you're again, it's, it's, it's a very, like very specific instance where you're going to use it, where you're fighting a horde of very weak undead at your level. So you know, again, like at fifth level, you're fighting, a horde of zombies or skeletons, or, you know, at 17th or 14th level, you're fighting a bunch of ghouls. So creatures that are way below your weight class. So unless you're in that specific instance, you're not going to use it or you're not going to get any mileage out of it rather. Right. It's more of a, considering it's actually kind of baked into when you use the turn undead feature right. is that it's hey, instead of them just running away, they explode. God instead which is more just a like hey that's actually good when dealing with hordes and stuff but right. if you're not fighting them it, it's kind of a dead ability right now one thing that's important to note is that this is a full progression spell casting class so even though there aren't tons of abilities for the class they are getting multiple spells every level um or if not multiple spells they're getting higher level spells and the cleric in particular has access to the entire cleric uh, spell list, which, uh, you know, unlike a wizard or some of the other classes where they have to record what spells they know or don't know, 
clerics have a much broader uh, list of spells that they're able to access. So um, that is something for us to remember. Now, at 8th level, uh, this one's a little bit interesting because it primarily each domain either gives the cleric um, a feature called Divine Strike or the domain gives them uh, a feature called Potent Spellcasting. But in Tasha's Cauldron of any Everything, they added something where you could replace either Divine Strike or Potent Spellcasting with Blessed Strikes. So I'm going to go over those now really quickly. Potent spellcasting basically just gives your, um, you add your wisdom modifier to the damage you deal with any cleric cantrip. So let's say that you have, this is eighth level, you probably have a wisdom modifier of 18 at that point. Uh, so you're talking about every cantrip that you're attacking with, you're dealing an extra four damage, um, which isn't bad. Uh, for the Divine Strike, uh, it basically, um, the way that that shows up is, why? okay, here you go. So for Divine Strike, uh, your weapon attacks are infused usually with a different type of energy. It could be fire, or necrotic, or something else. And uh, when, when you uh, hit a creature with a weapon attack, the cleric can cause the attack to deal an extra 1d8 damage of that damage type. And then for that one, when the cleric reaches 14th level, the extra damage increases to 2d8. So that's Divine Strike and uh, Potent Spellcasting. Alternatively, any cleric can choose to use Blessed Strikes if, if the DM is allowing the alternate features from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And... Uh, when a creature takes damage from one of your cantrips or weapon attacks, you can also deal 1d8 radiant damage to that creature. Once you deal this damage, you can't use this feature again until the start of your next turn. So there's a lot of discussion online about, you know, which of these is best. Um, potent spellcasting is, you know, you're not rolling any dice, just all of your cantrips automatically get that bonus wisdom modifier damage. Um, Blessed Strikes, it affects both your cantrips and your weapon attacks, uh, and you deal 1d8 radiant damage. And then the Divine Strikes is just your weapon attacks. Uh, you get a bonus 1d8 damage, and then at 14th level, it ups to 2d8. So I kind of feel like they're all pretty balanced um, as far as the different like rule sets go, but lots of people out there have differing opinions. Uh, Joe, Evan, any thoughts about the eighth level options for characters here? If you're looking at it from like a min maxing perspective, it's technically the divine strike obviously is going to be the most potent, but the law of averages is probably going to be losing out compared to, um, like the blessed strikes feature. And the main thing is, is that, hey, what kind of cleric am I playing? If it's one that's more upfront, like a Forge or Tempest Domain Cleric or War Domain, um, your Divine Strike, it, you're up and, up and, up and personal with uh, what you're fighting against. So you only can use your Divine Strike with your weapon attacks. Whereas Blessed Strikes, you, get that you can use that bonus on both your cantrips 
and your weapon attacks, or your weapon attacks, that is. Whereas the other domains that have the potent spellcasting, it's just a flat, it's your wisdom modifier for the damage you deal, but it's only for any of your cleric cantrips. I think in the same sense as how you said it, is that it's definitely balanced, but somebody out there has probably done the math that, hey, Blessed Strikes is probably the better option in most cases, that you'll probably get a lot more mileage out of it versus either just a flat static amount of damage or only being able to always use this ability on your weapon attacks. All right, uh, Evan, do you have a favorite out of these three? Do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, allowing these in your game? Uh, as for allowing them in my game, I mean, I would allow any of the three in my game. It kind of comes down to the player preference. I don't... I don't know that I necessarily think one is inherently a lot better than one of the others. Um, I think it really comes down to maybe your preference as to what kind of player you're, or what kind of cleric you're playing. If you're playing a cleric who likes to really get up in there, you know, um, then obviously you're going to favor the uh, divine strike. Or if, you know, you like doing uh, attacking from afar, then uh, that potent spellcasting may be a better match for you. So I think it comes down to play style, which is, you know, the point, which again, you know, it, I don't necessarily think um, one is better or worse or <sighs> see, I've never actually played a cleric in five E. So. Well, I, I think probably the one thing, if there's anything about blessed strikes that I would count against it is that, it's 1d8 radiant damage, whereas the divine strikes are all kind of themed around the domain that the different uh, yeah. clerics have chosen. And so the damage type kind of fits the theme a little bit more. Uh, that being said, at, at the same time, it's nice if you're like a forge cleric and you're dealing out lots of fire damage left and right. It's nice to be able to say, oh, by the way. I do have, you know, my blessed strikes. I can deal radiant damage instead, um, which you know maybe gives makes you a little bit more versatile. But that makes sense. Yeah. This this next um, one, I'm very interested to hear how you guys as DMs would rule on both the tenth level and the twentieth level bonuses for clerics. So at tenth level, they get divine intervention. Beginning at 10th level, you can call on your deity to intervene on your behalf when your need is great. Imploring your deity's aid requires you to use your action. Describe the assistance you seek and roll percentile dice. If you no roll a number equal to or lower than your cleric level, your deity intervenes. So when they say percentile dice, that's essentially a D100. So at 10th level, you've got to roll 10 or less. The DM chooses the nature of the intervention. The effect of any cleric spell or cleric domain spell would be appropriate. If your deity intervenes, you can't use this feature again for seven days. Otherwise, you can use it again after you finish a long rest. At 20th level, your call for intervention succeeds automatically. No roll required. So I'd love to hear from both of you guys um, how you would rule for these things what are the types of things that you would let in there um evan let's start with you uh first i love the idea of divine intervention um 
it makes sense that if you're playing, you know, the servant of a god, that you should be able to petition your god for aid. It also makes sense that, you know, like, you know, you're literally praying, and, you know, most prayers, it's not, you're not going to get the answer you want to hear, or any answer at all. Um, As a DM, I think it's a great option to maybe give uh, a crumb or a bit of information or some information from behind the screen to the player. Um, as a DM, I would be loath to, you know, go fire and brimstone something really dramatic, like, uh, <clears throat> you know, you know, if the, if the party is in the middle of a battle and, you know, they say, you know, uh, who's, you know, a common deity, uh, they say, you know, Paylor, come help me. I probably would not rule that, you know, Paylor or someone is going to come flying out of the sky to help them. But, you know, Paylor being a sun god, I would say, you know, it would not be out of reasonable for Paylor to, you know, suddenly hit the party with a really powerful healing spell or something like that. <clears throat> so, you know, that's a pretty direct way of dealing with it. You know, I would typically I would say, you know, OK, you know, what's some measure, not something campaign breaking or, you know, um, depending on the, I would typically like look at what level the party is and see what's something level appropriate or more interestingly, um, which I, I wish I would see more parties use divine intervention for things like, okay, we're stuck right now. We don't have any, like a lot of clues what to do next divine intervention. I'm going to ask the God, my pray for my God for guidance. Um, and you know, in that case as a DM, you're a lot, you're free to, you know, share, okay. Um, give them a vision of, you know, some plot point or some idea, you know, it kind of gives you as a DM more, uh, and a, a chance to, you know, interject, um, lore or, uh, that critical piece of information that the party missed over, you know, or, you know, to, to basically to put, you know, some piece of critically, you know, that, that one piece of information that you've been dying to get to them, they just haven't found a way to get out yet and hand it to them or, you know, do something else critical. Um, showcase, you know, that one critical flaw the villain has that the party just hasn't stumbled onto yet, you know, but, you know, it gives you a chance as a dungeon master to kind of do something again, you know, if the roles are with you. And that's the thing about divine intervention, it has to line up perfectly, which just makes it so much more dramatic when it does happen. So I think it's a great feature. Uh, having said all that, I don't think I've ever seen it happen at the table. I'm kind of in that same boat as you, Evan, is that uh, for, D for from a DM perspective, I love the idea of it because it is a possibility for an interesting role play from a role play aspect or just in those kind of situations of like, ah, crap, the battle is not going in our favor. Hey, God, can you lend us a hand? it's kind of both a plead to the DM, but also for the character, for their deity to kind of step in a little bit. But I could also kind of see it from another perspective because it does basically say, hey, you can only do this one day, uh, once per day, unless, the unless your god intervenes. You could also potentially have a player that's just like, Hey, I'm gonna call up. I'm gonna call up God and see if they respond. Nope, they didn't pick up. Hey, I'm calling up God. Oh, nope, they didn't pick up. Still, hey, God, can you, what? I'm finally here. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do, I do think it's more of a like you were saying of it is for those role play instances or like, hey, this this player actually put a thought into their prayer, pleading to their deity or something. 
for might fudge the rolls a little bit of like, eh, yeah, you might have needed a, to roll over 10 because that's your cleric level. But, you know, Paylor has been listening or Torm finally decided to step in a bit. Yeah, as a DM, I could see that. Or, you know, if maybe if the cleric has faithfully tried to do divine intervention since level 10 and, you know, and you're level 14 in the campaign, you've been level and, you know, you've been playing this campaign for eight months and they've tried it every day and it has never worked. And finally, you know, it's the final battle and they tried it again and it failed. As a dungeon master, I would be well within my rights. And I would, you know, say for any dungeon master, say, you know what? You needed to roll a 14 or below. You roll the 73. I don't care. You tried it so long. It works this time. So just this once, it works. Another way that I would probably roll it is that instead of it being, you know, rolling a number equal to or lower than your cleric level, that it would be from, you know, that or from the top end as well. Like, yeah, yeah level yeah. 14, you rolled a 98. Hey, what? that's within 14 of 100 or it's yeah. 14 to zero. That's fair. Yeah. Because you know, you, it, it takes a lot of time to get up to those high level uh, campaigns. Yeah. So especially for a kind of class-defining characteristic right? Uh, or class-defining ability, maybe you do actually want to be able to use it, but... Yeah, and I mean, as a feature, it's really not... I mean, like, I don't consider Divine Intervention to be game-breaking or anything. I mean, especially for only being able to use it once a day and then not again for seven days. And again, you know, just the idea of that when it finally works. I mean, I think, you know, I really think it's one of those things where... As a dungeon master, if you have a cleric who has faithfully been trying to use it, at some point, I feel like you kind of have to give it to them. Oh, yeah. Well, at, at, at least once during the campaign. Now, if you give it to them once and they're arguing for it every session, that's a separate issue. But I'm like, at least once, you kind of have to give it to them. You have to figure out a way for it to happen. Yep. I agree. As a player, first off, my cleric died before I got to 10th level. That, yeah, it, 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 <laughs> we're so, playing Curse of Strahd, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so anyways, uh, but I will say that as a player, I think that the important thing, if you're playing a cleric and you get Divine Intervention, you know, you get to 10th level, for you to request something specific and you request something that's not game-breaking. Yeah. You know, if you request, yep. hey, like I'm down to four health, I'm going to use my action to pray that I'll be healed. Um, or, you know, maybe you're a little bit higher level and you, in the role play sense, like, you know, you pray for, for your God to reveal a weakness of, of, you know, your big bad boss, or you pray for uh, direction or something on, you know, where, you know where to go next to discover the hidden temple or something like that um i think that that's the key if it, some of the things that i might not like be so ready to acquiesce to would be like i pray that you would give me a magic weapon right um yeah. you know or i pray that you would you know increase my wisdom by four like you know or something like that I think that it's it's key that while the god intervenes, it's not something that they're they're not boosting your character. Like it's not a hey, like we're I'm just gonna boost your character for all time. Right. But it's more that 
hey, like I'm I'm giving you something. Maybe it's hey, like you can treat your your long sword as a as the sun sword or something like that for the rest of this encounter. Like, right. you know, it's been imbued with divine energy or something. As opposed to, oh, now you have the sun sword. Like it just, you know, magically appears. Like I think that that's where as a player make sure that you're asking for something that isn't going to make you so overpowered compared to the other players. And, yep. and also at the same time, make sure that you're asking something that makes sense for your campaign, makes sense for, for your God, uh, for your God, that makes sense for how you've been playing your cleric throughout the game. Um, you know, it'd be really weird to be playing like a, a life cleric or something like that. And, uh, you know, pray for, Oh, I pray that, you know, you would raise an army of undead to protect us. Like, it's like, you know, that doesn't seem to fit, you know, your your role as much here. Um, whereas maybe a cleric of the grave, like that would be more. Apropos, if you will, uh, to to say, like, oh, like, I pray that, like, bones would rise to defend us, you know, as we flee from this dragon or something. Um, so I think if you're a player and you're getting this, it's important that you're not asking too much of your DM and that at the same time, you're also asking for something that role play wise fits your character. Um, let's enter my favorite part of our class episodes, which is how good or bad is the 20th <laughs> level, uh, ability of this class. Now we saw maybe the best one in the barbarian where they get plus four to strength and con and the maximum strength and con goes up uh and then we saw a really terrible one for the bard where at 20th level they uh get like a bonus inspiration die if they run out and here we go at 20th level your call for intervention succeeds automatically no role required is this good is this bad like also, is this annoying? Like once a week, the cleric, the twentieth level cleric, like praise the god. I would assume that if you're running a campaign, you get to twentieth level. Probably they're only going to need to do this once. But Evan, just just placate me here. Is this good? Is this bad? Does does it even matter? I think this is one of those things that looks. <laughs> Excuse me, that looks good on paper, but that ultimately is eh, kind of middle of the road. Um, it sounds really cool. It's like, oh, man, I don't ever have to roll for divine intervention ever again. But at 20th level, I mean, uh, again, it's ultimately it's once a week. So you're going to use it. And, you know, I assume that most most campaigns are not going to go on for real long at 20th level. So you're going to use it. We're going to say at most, what, like three or four times, which is, is really cool. Um, I just love the image of a god like who's getting really annoyed with having to deal with the same cleric who basically has them on speed dial now. Having to answer, you know, favors for them constantly. But I, I, feel mean, like it, I feel like it could go one of two ways depending on how that deity is. It's just like, holy crap, this this uh this individual is so devoted to me, hell yeah, I'm going to answer their call when they ask. But it could also be the other kind of deity where it's just like, oh, they're calling again. What is it? All right, you need some healing here. Here, you know, here's a mass heal. Go go deal with this other lich elsewhere, please. 
what is what is it that you need me to do that you as a 20th level character can't handle probably on your own and that's the other thing too as a 20th level character like what is it you're asking your god for that you yourself can't do as a 20th level cleric i mean because you've got access to um to mass heal uh yeah i mean you've got access miracle. to ninth yeah, you've got access to ninth level spells at this point. Like, you're probably pretty OP at this point. And so it, it does feel like maybe at 20th level, the DM can start dropping really great stuff on them. But again, it's once a week. You're probably not running a multiple weeks in game time uh, at 20th level. You know, mm. like, you know, you're probably not running like, 10 more months of adventure in game time at 20th level. If you even get to 20th level, I mean, most of the canned adventures from uh, Wizards of the Coast right now run up to, you know, 10th level or 12th or 15th. So you're not even really seeing 20th level that often. Uh, anyways, that's just a little bit of fun that we like to have here. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back as we get into our domains. Hey everyone, welcome back. So now we're going to go through the different domains. There are 14 cleric domains. And what we've done is we've picked some of our favorites to talk about here. So each of us are going to talk about them. And then at the end, I'll kind of wrap up with some of the ones that uh, didn't get added into uh, our favorites list. It's not that those are necessarily bad domains. Uh, they just didn't make it into some of our favorites. So... First off, I'm going to kick it over to Evan, and he's going to talk to us about the life domain. Okay. The life domain is, uh, you know, if uh, cleric is kind of the stereotypical healing class, and if you want to be a healy cleric, the uh, domain you pick is the life domain. It is, hands down, the best uh, option to get the most out of your healing spells, and it has a lot of really great abilities. First of all, uh, whenever you choose it at first level, you automatically gain proficiency with heavy armor. So, you know, if you have the money, you know, or the ability at first level, you can already be getting into chain mail or even full plate armor, getting that AC up there, which is great if you're going to be a healer because you want to be able to take hits, stay up as long as possible. Uh, also, starting at first level, um, Whenever you're going to be using any spell healing spells of first level or higher of higher to restore hit points, the creature is going to regain additional hit points equal to two plus the spell's level. So you again, right at first level, you're going to be healing, doing a lot more healing. Um, you get the option to preserve life with Channel Divinity, and which basically lets you um, just going to be make it a little bit more concise here. You can. Uh, mass heal to a group of people but you can't restore more than half or you can't restore uh, a creature to more than half of their health but if you're dealing with a party that's down really low it's a really clutch ability and uh you get then you get blessed healer at sixth level uh when you cast a spell of first level higher that restore hit points to a creature other than you you regain hit points equal to two plus the spells level so again if you're going to be taking hits and you're healing other people you don't have to worry about healing yourself so much. So just, you know, really great abilities. Um, yeah, that, that Blessed Healer one is really nice to be able mm -hmm. to, like, heal somebody and get your own uh, health up a little bit also. That's super nice. 
Right. Um, really, the only one that isn't kind of super duper impressive, and it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's just kind of you know not not as impressive as the other ones. Is the seventeenth level ability, which is supreme healing, starting at seventeenth level when you would normally roll one or more dice to restore hit points with a spell. You instead use the highest number possible for each die, which is really cool. So instead of restoring two d six hit points, you restore twelve, which is a really cool ability. But by seventeenth level, I mean you already have access to like the heal spell, which is you know doing already restoring huge amounts of hit points. So not as super duper clutch ability as some of these others, but still really impressive. So as the domains go, I think this is one of the best ones. And again, if you decide that, hey, I want to be a cleric, I want to be someone to heal people. And, you know, you ask, OK, you know, I'm your DM. And you ask, what should I choose? You know, without equivocation, you know, 100 percent, I'm going to say the life domain. And even, you know, even if you're just like, hey, I want to be a cleric, I'm not sure what to choose. You could do a lot worse than the life domain. I mean, again, it's it's one. I think it is still one of the best domains out there. As a player, no player is going to turn down additional healing in from any any additional player. <laughs> right. And the life domain is uh, free on D and D Beyond, so that means that you know if you have a new player who doesn't have like access to books and stuff, which is a really weird like concept this day and age, but um, if they didn't. They could make a life domain cleric on D and D Beyond. It'd be be ready to go. All right, so um, now we're going to kick it over to Joe. He's going to talk about the Forge cleric. Oh yes. Uh, so the Forge cleric is probably my one of my favorite domains. If I'm ever playing a cleric or even just creating them for antagonists uh, in my games, and the main thing is is that as a Forge cleric, you are a holy blacksmith is the best way to describe it. Like the spells that you get for your cleric levels are generally around things that deal with uh, items such as the identify or uh, if you're feeling kind of close to the idea of being a paladin, but not really a paladin, you get searing smite or heat metal and elemental weapon and animate objects or creation, just some very cool physical manipulation magic but probably the best factors to it is the uh first level ability you get as a forge cleric is the blessing of the forge where at the end of the long rest you can touch one non-magical object such as a suit of armor or a simple or martial weapon and until the end of your next long rest or die that object is now a magic weapon getting a plus one uh, bonus to AC if it's armor, or plus one bonus to attack and damage rolls with that weapon. At level one, that is a potent ability to have. So if you're in a party with a Forge Cleric, everybody's probably going to be trying to get him to him or her to give that bonus to their uh, stuff. Also at first level, you, you gain proficiency with heavy armor. Yes. Miss tools. Yes. Um, which, it, you know, kind of, you know, pushes that... Uh, that forge domain e- even further uh tell us about their their channel divinity that they get so kind of the cool thing in this kind of comes into more of a bit of a role play or just kind of like during downtime aspects versus like in combat is the benefit of the artisan's blessing as or channel divinity artisan's blessing where you effectively can create simple items such as 
a, a simple or martial weapon, a suit of armor within, you know, a certain limit of up to no more than 100 gold pieces. So you're not crafting plate armor just from some scrap you found on the side of the road. But if you need like, hey, I need some bit of chain mail or like I need an axe because my axe broke in the side of some some creature's face. Uh, this is a way that you can kind of restock yourselves a little bit uh, for you and your your companions. Personally, I like this because that's kind of just cool and again reinforces the concept of the domain's focus. Um, moving on to the sixth level ability, Soul of the Forge, where you as the cleric gets resistance to fire damage. And while you are wearing heavy armor, plus one bonus to your AC. So nothing fancy, but just some nice monetary benefits to your character's already good stats probably yeah uh, getting into the eighth level your divine strike uh deals fire damage to the target if you use it uh or blessed strikes if you decide to go that route uses the radiant damage option so really between the two there's really not much of a difference between hey you might be dealing fire if you're up and close on something or using your blessed strikes for uh, adding that damage to your cantrips instead. Then the last bit, the 17th level feature, uh, is the Saint of Forge and Fire. And personally, I just like the uh, names of all of the abilities for the Forge Cleric. Uh, but the benefit at 17th level is you're now immune to fire damage. And while wearing heavy armor, your resistance to you gain resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical attacks. Now, at 17th level, what aren't you fighting that probably has non-magical attacks? I don't know, but it's still pretty cool to have. Immunity to fire damage, though, is no joke. Oh like, yeah, that's, that's really nice. Um, I would say. I also, totally agree with that. Like, and probably for the kind of a concept where in general, a forge player could probably be fit into just about any campaign. Um, you're probably fighting things that are dealing out either a lot of fire damage or something that's ready to, you know, nuke your party with a fireball. You'll just stand there ready to take it without any, you know, just brush off your shoulders. Evan, uh, any thoughts here about the Forge Cleric before we move on? I think it's an awesome class. I, you know, echo everything Joe said. Excellent option. Really great abilities. Yeah, I I would love to play this in uh, the Mythic Odysseys of Theros or... Uh, um, Eberron probably would another another good spot to fit them in. Yeah, really cool. Lots of lots of role play that you can that you can eek out of this one yeah um okay so uh the next one that we're going to cover is the twilight domain uh this one comes out of uh tasha's cauldron of everything and uh i got to play a twilight domain cleric for a little bit and i loved i loved it um so uh at first level uh they gain proficiency with martial weapons and heavy armor uh, so this is another frontline fighter, uh, much like the Forge Cleric. Um, they also get Eyes of Night uh, at first level. Uh, 
they can see through the deepest gloom. They have dark vision out to a range of 300 feet. And you can see, uh, you know, you basically have dark vision out to 300 feet, which is pretty awesome. And then as an action, you can magically share the dark vision of this feature with willing creatures you can see within 10 feet of you up to a number of creatures equal to your wisdom modifier. Which now, is incredible. Yeah, the shared mm-hmm. dark vision lasts for one hour. Once you share it, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest unless you expend a spell slot of any level to share it again. This is really cool. Um, you know, you have that character, you have that person who picked a variant human uh, for whatever reason. Uh, they don't have dark vision. You can just pop this on them while you're going through the cave or whatever. Now, it is only for an hour, um, but this is a really cool, you know, ability. It's at first level, and it's also at a range of 300 feet. Very few anything has dark vision that far away. So that's very cool also at first level they get vigilant blessing um as an action you give one creature you touch advantage on the next initiative roll the creature makes this benefit ends immediately after the roll or if you use this feature again so this is a great you know it's not huge but it's a nice little party buff um and that's really where i feel like the twilight cleric comes in as more of like a buffy cleric they obviously they can do some healing they can survive on the front line with their heavy armor um but they really are great at buffing the rest of the party and their channel divinity at second level um uh basically uh you create a sphere of light that has a 30 foot radius centered on you the sphere moves with you and it lasts for one minute or until you're incapacitated or die Whenever a creature, including you, ends its turn in the sphere, you can grant that creature one of these benefits. You grant it temporary hit points equal to 1d6 plus your cleric level. Um, You end one effect on it, causing it to be charmed or frightened. Uh, That's awesome. Temporary hit points are great, but um, we've talked about it on the show before. Uh, Being charmed is terrible for the for the party uh and just one creature being charmed is really bad and so the fact that you have an ability to um cancel out one of your characters being charmed is really really powerful um at sixth level you get steps of night you can draw on the mystical power of the night to rise into the air as a bonus action when you're in dim light or darkness you can magically give yourself a flying speed equal to your walking speed for one minute can use this bonus action a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you gra- regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Uh, flight is always cool. Now, this is only for one minute, um, but it's a bonus action, and so that means that you could kick this on, you know, for really an entire encounter if you needed to. Um, I think it's I think it's pretty powerful. Um, their divine strike is radiant damage so not as much versatility with you know choosing this or blessed strikes um it's really just a decision of where do you want to be at 14th level do you want an extra 2d8 i think blessed strikes are probably better for them because then it's your cantrips and your weapon attacks uh and you know if you get to 14th level you can you can figure out what you did wrong there uh, and then their 17th level power is Twilight Shroud. The twilight that you summon offers a protective embrace. You and your allies have half cover while in the sphere created by your twilight sanctuary. Um, 
so this is pretty great uh you know to be able to also have half cover you know which improves uh your ability to you know not be hit by range attacks and stuff like that um i love the twilight cleric also their spell list is just sweet they get moonbeam which i think is really cool they get sea invisibility um and uh they also get aura of vitality so and then at seventh level they get greater invisibility which is just it's it's some powerful stuff to add to the cleric spell list so uh evan joe any thoughts about the twilight cleric before we move on it's a really cool class uh the uh divine or uh, the channel divinity is extremely potent being able to stack or you know being able to throw out those temporary hit points to basically the entire party every round without the cleric having to do anything because it's just automatic is really cool being able to cancel the charm and frightened is really awesome again without having to do anything it's just an innate ability of the uh, channel divinity really cool and i'm sorry i killed your cleric who had that who was a twilight domain <laughs> okay that's okay. I forgive you. It took me a I, while. I've forgiven you. I personally haven't played with uh, anybody that's also played a Twilight Cleric, but uh, from reading out the abilities, like I, they're definitely a potent and very flavorful uh, domain choice for sure. Yeah, and and their powers probably are maybe a little more focused on the lower end of things. So if you have somebody who wants to do some cool stuff. Uh, and you're playing a low level game, you know, if you're starting at first level, this is a, a cleric that is going to give them a lot of cool stuff, you know, for second and third level. So definitely. All right. Um, Evan, we're going back to you. You're going to tell us a little bit about the light cleric. Uh, so full disclosure, I think the light domain is overall not among the best, unlike the other domains we're talking about. I don't think it's necessarily one of the best domains, but I think it's really good if you want to play a very particular kind of cleric. If you want to be a blasty cleric, a cleric who just kind of sits back and throws out a lot of damage-dealing spells and, you know, for lack of a better term, wants to be kind of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of a DPS dealing, you know, kind of like a wizard, but is still a cleric, this is the one you go with. Um, just in short, uh, the domain spells you get at first level, you get burning hands. And then at third level, you get flaming sphere and scorching ray. Then at the big one at fifth level, you actually get fireball. So with this domain, you're going to be able to throw out a lot of damage dealing spells that affect areas. Again, you know, even at first level, you're throwing out burning hands. So you're going to be able to deal, you know, a lot of area effect damage with this, which you don't see a whole lot of with the cleric necessarily. So, you know, if you want to do someone who can do some healing, but you still want to be someone who can pump out damage to a whole bunch of enemies, this is a really cool domain that lets you do that. Um, and then for the uh, domain abilities, you get a bonus cantrip at first level. You get the light cantrip if you don't already know it. And it doesn't count against the number of cleric cantrips, you know. Not super impressive. The light cantrip... I don't know that I've ever really seen anyone use it because most races have some form of dark vision... And if they don't, uh, I mean, lanterns, torches, and the like. So, not super impressive. Warding Flare. When you're attacked by a creature within 30 feet, you can see you can use a reaction and impose disadvantage on the attack roll, causing light to flare before the attacker hits or misses. 
An attacker that can't be blinded is immune to the feature, and you can use it a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. Not, again, it's not a bad feature. It's just not necessarily great. Um, so basically, you know, you can just kind of give an enemy disadvantage on attack roll against you. So useful. I mean, as a first level ability, it's useful, but I mean, it's not, you know, again, nothing really super amazing. Um, but at second level, you get uh, Radiance of the Dawn, and this lets you uh, present your holy symbol, and any magical darkness within 30 feet of you is dispelled, which um, doesn't sound really impressive at first, but especially at lower levels, getting rid of magical darkness can be really annoying if you don't have someone who has dispel magic handy. Additionally, each hostile creature within 30 feet of you must make a constitution saving throw. A creature takes radiant damage equal to 2d10 plus your cleric level on a failed saving throw and half as much damage on a successful one. A creature that has total cover from you is not effective. This is super useful. Um, first of all, each hostile creature, so, which means that you can blast this out without necessarily worrying about hitting party members that specifies hostile creatures. And 2d10 plus your cleric level, so... Not a huge amount of damage, but at even you know at second level, that's a decent amount of damage. So and it's not going to stack as well going up to higher levels, but again, a decent amount of damage and being able to dispel magical darkness. So, um, again, showing that you can affect a huge amount of you know a large area of a lot of enemies. And then at sixth level, you get improved flare. So you can use your warding flare feature when a creature that you can see within thirty feet of you attacks a creature other than you. So this lets you impose disadvantage whenever someone attacks an enemy attacks another party member, which is a lot more useful. At sixth level, again, it's not super impressive as a lot of the other sixth level abilities, but again, it's you know not terrible. Uh, potent spellcasting. Starting at eighth level, you add your wisdom modifier to the damage you deal with any cleric cantrip. Um, so we've kind of gone over that a little bit. At 17th level, you get Corona of Light. You can use your action to activate an Aura of Sunlight. It lasts for one minute or until you dismiss it using another action. You emit Bright Light in a 60-foot radius and Dim Light beyond that. Enemies in the Bright Light have disadvantage on saving throws against any spell that deals fire or radiant damage. Not super impressive. Um, it is Sunlight, so if you're fighting vampires, that's really good. But at 17th level, unless you're playing you know, some very specific homebrew campaign where you're fighting a bunch of vampires. Not, again, it's not god-awful, but it's not terribly impressive. So this is, again, one of those classes that the main thing is that spell list and that Radiance of the Dawn channel divinity ability. Yeah, that, that spell list is really why you're taking this. Yeah, because exactly. Because you want to be, have your cleric heal, healing abilities, but you also want to be able to... Throw blast. You want to blast stuff with fire, so... Yeah. Um definitely cool joe any thoughts on the light cleric before we move on i i see the light cleric as this is this is the kind of domain you want to pick if you are a devotee of a wrathful deity for instance you are you are bringing the pain uh in all of these spells and uh abilities if you're playing a light cleric this is good if maybe your party doesn't have a wizard Mm -hmm. And like maybe if you've got like a fighter and a paladin and maybe a uh, a druid or a bard or so you don't necessarily have someone who can deal 
a whole lot of damaging magic. So you choose to be a cleric, someone who can deal healing, but also you want to be able to do a lot of damage. So this would be a good option for that. All right, uh, Joe, we're going to kick it over to you with the order cleric. All right. So with an order domain cleric, if you are looking to play a character that is very much into the word of God, effectively, this is the kind of cleric you would probably want to pick because the spell list that they get added to their, uh, aside from the already versatile uh, cleric spell list, you get things like command, hold person, slow, compulsion, and dominate person uh, along those along those things. Um, but some of the other real cool bonuses you get from first level. You get proficiency with heavy armor, like some of the others we've already said, but you also gain proficiency in intimidation or persuasion of your choice. The other first level ability you get is the Voice of Authority, where you can invoke the power of law to drive an ally to attack. You cast a spell or a spell slot of one of first level or higher and target an ally with that spell. That ally can then use their reaction immediately to make one weapon attack against a creature of your choice that you can see. Uh, if the spell targets more than one ally, you choose the ally who can make the attack. So say, for instance, that you guys are getting kind of surrounded by things and you needed to send out a little bit of a heal to your barbarian that's in the throw, uh, throes of combat. Uh, they can get an extra swing in on things and hopefully, you know, turn the tide in your favor. Yeah, that's that's a very cool skill. Um, or sorry, not skill. It's a very cool ability to. It's a nice. It's yeah. nice. It's a nice buffing uh, ability, especially at first level, to give you know your barbarian or rogue can heal them, and then they also get that that bonus attack. Considering five E is all about the action economy, this is definitely a way to help pump out some more damage and not it be directed just from the cleric. Uh, so moving on to the second level where you get your channel divinity of orders demand, where you can use your channel divinity to exert an intimidating presence over others. As an action, present your holy symbol. Each creature of your choice that can see or hear you within 30 feet must make a wisdom save or be charmed by you until the end of your next turn or until the charmed creature takes any damage. You can also cause any of the charmed creatures to drop what they are holding when they fail the saving throw. That's really potent, especially when you're fighting a bunch of things that if they fail, have them drop their weapons. Guess what? They're a little bit more uh, easy to handle because they're going to waste their time picking their stuff up to try and attack you if uh, they uh, when they're about to be attacked again. And And this goes back to the power of each creature of your choice that you can see or hear that can see or hear you within 30 feet of you. I mean, that's really powerful because it's not just one creature you're talking yeah. about. Hey, like it's, all a, five it's everything except your party, unless you want to, yeah. you know, cause a little mischief around your party. You know, I mean, but like having five orcs be charmed by you, uh, it's until the end of your next turn. That's like really powerful. Um, you know, especially if you make them all drop their, their weapons and then, you know, if you have somebody who can push them or move them like in mm -hmm. any way so that they can't grab those weapons, there's 
there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do. A lot of dynamic that can be done and played off from it. If uh, if any of those creatures fail those saves, at least. Yep. Um, so moving on to the next bit is the sixth level, the embodiment of the law. Uh, if you cast a spell or of the enchantment school using a spell slot of first level or higher, you can change the spell's casting time to one bonus action for the casting, provided the spell's casting time is normally one action. Uh, you can use this number of feature uh, number of times equal to your wisdom modifier, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. This gives a lot of flexibility for you know all of those additional enchantment spells. Uh, that were that you get from choosing the order domain. So, hey, I need to be able to uh, try and hold that person, uh, try and cast hold person on that character over there, and then throw out a cantrip because casting a bonus action, uh, casting a spell as a bonus action, and then being able to throw out a cantrip is very potent. This this really gives a lot of flexibility to the order domain. Uh, now going into the eighth level where your divine strike is going to deal psychic damage, uh, instead of, um, I think this is actually the first one that it's actually dealing psychic damage. I don't think any of the other domains have read out that for their divine strike or potent spell casting. So it's definitely a hard damage to be resisted, uh, for things that you might be fighting against. But again, it is your weapon strikes, uh, whereas Blessed Strike, it's that radiant damage on either your cantrips or weapon attacks. And then finally, to ca the capstone for the Order domain is the 17th level Order's Wrath, where enemies you designate for destruction wilt under the combined efforts of you and your allies. If you deal your Divine Strike damage to a creature on your turn, you can curse that creature until the start of your next turn. The next time one of your allies hits the cursed creature with an attack, the target also takes 2d8 psychic damage and the curse ends. You can curse a creature in this way only once per turn. You're up against the big boss creature. That thing is going to be a listening to your god's, uh, your god's message very closely, or otherwise they're going to be suffering some psychic damage. I, I just think that's kind of a very cool capstone um, ability for this particular domain. Yeah, it's it's definitely a cool domain. It definitely has that kind of law and order feel to it. Um, I think that this also, maybe if your party needs a face, uh, this is one of those uh, domains that maybe leans a little bit more into the role play. Oh, um, yeah, 100%. Leader of the party type um, role. So, uh, especially being able to get intimidation or persuasion at first level, I think that this this has probably more of that like, hey, I need to be a healer and not be terrible in combat and also, you know, have some negotiating skills. Uh, this one seems to fit. So, Evan, any thoughts about the Order Cleric before we move on? Uh, I think there's some dope abilities there, and uh, eh, give it a try sometime. All right, so next up, I'm going to talk about the Tempest domain. Um, I love this domain, especially uh, like for any kind of like 
piratey type stuff or if you're doing like anything where you're on the sea a lot of their um a lot of their spells like are related to the weather so they get fog cloud thunder wave gust of wind call lightning sleet storm uh control water ice storm uh so they've got a lot of neat stuff coming in there <clears throat> at first level they gain proficiency with martial weapons and heavy armor and then they also get Wrath of the Storm. Um, when a creature within five feet of you hits you with an attack, you can use your reaction to cause the creature to make a deck saving throw. That creature takes 2d8 lightning or thunder damage, your choice, on a failed saving throw and half as much on a successful one. You can use that feature a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier, and you regain the uses after a long rest. So pretty neat reaction, um, you know, to be able to to pop some lightning or thunder damage. Um, again, this is at first level, so really nice to be able to hit back with that. And again, you have heavy armor and martial weapons, so this is a great kind of like frontline fighter class, I feel like, frontline cleric class. And then their channel divinity at second level is Destructive Wrath. Um, when you roll lightning or thunder damage, you can use your channel divinity to deal maximum damage instead of rolling so that stacks with that reaction so you're talking about uh you know being able to drop down you know an extra 2d8 uh damage when whenever you get hit uh so pretty powerful channel divinity there um and then at six level their power is called thunderbolt strike when you deal lightning damage to a large or smaller creature can also push it up to 10 feet away from you so again you're, you're just all about controlling what's immediately around you uh their divine strike is thunder damage so you get a choice between thunder with the divine strike or radiant with the blessed strike and then at 17th level they get stormborn uh you have a flying speed equal to your current walking speed whenever you are not underground or indoors so a uh, I really like, uh, again, I think that if you're playing like an ocean campaign or anything where there's a lot of seafaring, I think the Tempest is really cool. But also, if you just want to be somebody who is hard to hit, hard to kill, uh, this this is a great, this is probably right up there with the Forge domain as far as frontline fighter clerics go. So, um, guys, any thoughts about the Tempest domain? Joe, we'll start with you. All right. Uh, I like the Tempest Domain a lot, and that's primarily just because uh, a lot of inspiration from like WoW and whatnot, or things of other other games where something that's channeling that elemental energy. You have the you know the lightning effects from the eyes, or just cascading lightning bolts and thunder around your your presence is just a very cool concept to me that if i was playing a cleric in like a game that was featuring a lot of like elementals or things of that nature this would fit in perfectly or just in general from a character perspective it's just a good solid concept like you were saying about being a frontline fighter that wants to kind of dish out some cool damage yeah evan uh Anything before we move on? Thunder and lightning is cool. 
All right, Evan, uh, you're going to tell us about the War Domain next, right? I am indeed. Uh, War Domain, I think it's, um, I think overall it's kind of a middling domain. Um, I think they're, you know, it's not great, but it's not necessarily terrible either. Um, you get the spells you get are, you know, get Divine Favor, Shield of Faith at first level. Um, then you get like uh, Magic Weapon, Spiritual Weapon, third level. By ninth level, get flame strike, hold monster, which none of them are bad, um, but you know it's not really nothing great. Uh, for features, just go over it briefly. That it's not at all a complicated domain. First level, you get bonus proficiencies. You gain uh, proficiency with martial weapons and heavy armor. The martial weapons proficiency is really cool because um, as a cleric, you don't necessarily get a whole lot of weapon proficiencies, and so being able to use like long swords and things like that. It's a pretty cool ability. Um, also, at first level, you gain the ability to make a bonus attack um, a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier, which, uh, which you only get it back after a long rest. So at first level, you're talking about, you know, two or three times in a day, which isn't a whole lot, but it's, you know, a kind of neat little ability. At second level, you get Guided Strike, which basically gives you a plus 10 bonus to an attack roll. Again, you know, it's a decent ability. Uh, sixth level, however, um, you gain the War God's Blessing, which lets you gain a, give a plus 10 bonus roll whenever someone else in the party makes an attack roll. You make the choice after you see the roll, but before the DM says whether it hits or misses, which is a lot more impressive, because basically, you know, it kind of turns you into everyone's kind of battle buddy friend. Um, so whenever somebody rolls an attack roll and everyone's on the fence about not really sure whether it hits or not, you can kind of remove that doubt automatically say, you know, is it a 16? Not really sure if it hits or not. Okay. Plus 10, 26, pretty sure that hits. So doing able to do, being able to do that a couple of times, pretty cool. Um, gain divine strike, which we've been over at 17th level, you gain avatar of battle. Um, you gain resistance to bludgeoning, piercing and slashing damage from non-magical attacks. Although at 17th level, not sure what you're going to be fighting that doesn't have access to either really powerful magic or doesn't already have magical attacks in inherently. So overall, not a super impressive class, but um, the first level proficiencies, you know, with martial weapons and heavy armor are nice. And the uh, ability to make the bonus weapon attack at first level, kind of impressive, but it really doesn't scale very well. So overall kind of a middling domain yeah i think that the order domain when that got released uh in when it got re-released in tasha's really kind of uh made the war domain yeah feel like uh not a not a bad choice but just it it kind of fell out of that yeah top tier uh more towards like the mid tier because um Tasha's really pushed, you know, Twilight and Order into yeah. that mm -hmm. top tier of right. play along yeah. with, you know, Life and Light and Forge. When I when I see a War Cleric, uh, actually one of my players is playing a War Cleric right now, it, it kind of feels to me as like, I want to be a fighter, but I want to have full spell casting ability. Because kind of outside of that full spell progression... The Guided Strike and War God's Blessing is kind of the real, like, potency behind this uh, uh, domain. Right. 
All right. Um, so that was the war domain. Joe, you want to share with us about the grave domain? Nah, grave grave domain is dead. It's all about dead. <laughs> nah, uh, the grave actually kind of similar is uh, again I of clerics that I've played. I've played forge order and grave, so that's primarily why I enjoy these domains. But the cool things about the grave grave domain is it actually kind of feels a bit better than the death domain, which I know you're going to cover in just a moment, Snow. Um, but the grave domain you get, at for, uh, aside from your kind of cool grave domain spells, you get nifty little things like Bane or Vampiric Touch or Revivify and Raise Dead, but it's all centered around necromancy for obvious reasons. Yeah, the circle of morality, or correction, the circle of mortality. Morality is a completely different concept. For yeah, others. yeah, there's no morality here. <laughs> uh, is that you gain the ability to manipulate the line between life and death? If you would normally roll one or more dice to restore hit points with a spell to a creature at zero hit points, you instead use the highest number of possible, uh, highest number possible for each die. So, in addition, you also get the Spare the Dying cantrip uh, just for free and doesn't count against your other spell can uh, cantrips you know. Uh, the additional benefit to it is its range is increased from um, uh, being a touch spell. It gets increased to be within 30 feet. So a party member goes down unexpectedly and they're starting to roll death saves. Uh, you can cast Spare the Dying from a distance probably save their life and you can cast it as a bonus action yep which is is great because it doesn't take up your turn um the other first level benefit is the eyes of the grave where you gain the ability to occasionally sense the presence of the undead uh as an action you open your awareness to them and until the end of your next turn you know the location of any undead within 60 feet of you that isn't behind total cover and isn't protected by divine magic, or isn't protected from divine magic, that is. Uh, doesn't tell you anything about the creature's capabilities or what they are, but you know they're there. So you're walking through a, you know, some swamp lands, uh, and you get the eerie feeling of your hair standing up at the back of your neck. You sense this out. You're probably going to detect that, hey, there's corpses in the river that are starting to move and want to actually go and eat your flesh. Uh, the second level, Channel Divinity, is the Path to the Grave, where you can focus your Channel Divinity to, uh, to mark another creature's life, for, life force for termination. As an action, choose one creature you can see within 30 feet, cursing it until the end of your next turn. The next time you or an ally hits this cursed creature with an attack, the creature has vulnerability to all of that attack's damage, and then the curse ends. This is extremely potent if, uh, you know, you, you've cursed somebody, uh, some creature out there, and your wizard or barbarian or somebody else you know has a wallop of an ability they're ready to cast. This thing can make that damage just skyrocket. Yeah, that's super powerful. Yeah. Uh, for sixth level, you get the Sentinel at Death's Door. 
you gain the ability to impede death's progress. As a reaction, when you or a creature you can see within 30 feet of you suffers a critical hit, you can turn that into a normal hit. Any effects triggered by a critical hit are canceled. Uh, similar to the other six level abilities, you use that you can use this up to a number of times equal to your wisdom not modifier, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. This is super nice when you see, hey, the troll is about to cave our part our party's uh, barbarian or fighter's uh, skull in because they just crit with their two handed swing, and now it's just a normal hit. So. Their skull's only cracked instead of obliterated. Yeah, uh, at 8th level, you get potent spellcasting, as we've discussed before. Uh, you add your wisdom modifier to the damage you deal with any cleric cantrip, or you can have 1d8 radiant damage on your cantrips or weapon attacks. Kind of take your pick of what kind of cleric you want to be. But I feel like... Wouldn't you say that the Grave Cleric is a little more of a, like, stand back and control the battlefield and a little bit less a little, of a, like, upfront, in-your-face cleric? A little bit, but it also kind of depends on, you know, personality that you want to play. Like, it would make perfect sense for the Grave Cleric, you know, being somebody that uh, follows a deity of death. They're probably striding through battlefields up front and center, either seeking out a glorious death or just paving the way for their deity of sending souls to them. Uh, speaking of souls, is their capstone feature for 17th level is the Keeper of Souls. At 17th level, you can seize a trace of vitality from a parting soul and use it to heal the living. When an enemy you see dies within 60 feet of you, you or one creature of your choice that is within 60 feet of you regains hit points equal to the num enemy's number of hit dice. You can use this feature only if you aren't incapacitated. Once you use it, you can't do so again until the start of your next turn. So, again, kind of similar to the other 17th level abilities, this sounds very cool on paper, but how many things are you actually dealing with where it's going to be super potent to... Um, Right, like, even if something has, like, 14 hit die, like... I could cast heal and get so much more. Right. I mean, it's a nice it's a nice bonus thing, but it's not something that you're like, wow, this is so powerful. Um, I think the main benefit of it is, is that this can happen, like, it doesn't use up one of your actions or bonus action or reaction. It's just, if this happens... You can use this ability, but only once each turn. Yeah. Still really powerful. Oh, uh, yeah. I yep. When I played a Grave Cleric in a uh, Death House um, one-shot, it was very fun to run around as that, uh, playing as a Grave Cleric. Super, super fun. Um, all right, so... What we're going to do next, this, this episode has gone on and on, so I'm going to do a lightning round of our last six domains here. I'll talk about them briefly and then uh, we'll give Evan and Joe a chance to comment. Um, and so uh, we'll start with the arcane domain. Uh, you At first level, you gain arcana as a skill. At second level, uh, you get some channel divinity stuff. Uh, you can, uh, like, I don't know, as an action, uh, you can 
Okay, pause, stop. I didn't I did not copy this correctly. I missed <laughs> something here. So note to self, cut at the one hour and forty-three minute mark. Uh all right, let me get back up to it. I'm sorry, guys. Good. All right. Yeah, I cut multiple things. I, I don't know what happened there. All right. Okay, so we're going to start the lightning round here with the Arcane Domain. Uh, this comes from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, so you know it's going to be great. Right, Evan? Yep. Just kidding. It's going to be trash. Um, be a wizard. <laughs> just be a wizard. Uh, at first level, you gain the Arcana skill. You gain two cantrips of your choice from the wizard spell list. These cantrips count as cleric cantrips for you. At second level, you get Arcane Abjuration, uh, uh, one celestial elemental fae or fiend of your choices within 30 feet of you must make a wisdom saving throw. Um, uh, if they if the creature fails, it's turned for one minute or until it takes any damage. Um, so it's turned just like undead, basically. After you reach fifth level, when a creature fails its saving throw against your Arcane Abjuration feature, the creature is banished for one minute. Uh, if it isn't on its plane of origin and its challenge rating is at or below a certain threshold. And again, it follows the same stuff as the turn undead. So again, you're banishing really wimpy creatures that that are attacking you when, when they have no business doing it. Um, at sixth level, you get Spellbreaker. When you restore hit points to an ally with a spell first level or higher, you can also end one spell of your choice on that creature. Uh, the level of the spell you end must be equal to or lower than the spell of the spell slot you use to cast the healing spell. Uh, so this is okay, but it ends up being something where because the spell has to be lower than, like at or lower than the level of the spell that you're healing them with, you may end up burning a higher level healing spell than you need to to end that uh, effect on them. They get potent spell casting, which makes sense. And then at 17th level, they get Arcane Mastery. You choose four spells from the wizard's spell list, one from each of the following levels, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth. You add them to your list of domain spells, and they count as cleric spells for you. That's probably the most powerful 17th level uh, of any of the cleric domains, but I'll just say this. like You could just be a wizard and... Uh, be be a divination wizard at right, that. Right, just... Just be a wizard with some heal spells and you'll be fine. Uh, next up is the Death Domain. This is from the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's really designed to be for like evil clerics. But, you know, maybe your Dungeon Master says you can play it. But I would just play the Grave Cleric because that's kind of cooler anyways. Um, uh, you gain proficiency with martial weapons at first level. You also gain the Reaper ability. When the cleric casts a necromancy cantrip that normally targets only one creature, the spell can instead target two creatures within range and within five feet of each other. This is fine, but again, the creatures have to be bunched up for you to do it. At second level, you get Touch of Death. Uh, when the cleric hits a creature with a melee attack, the cleric can use Channel Divinity to deal extra necrotic damage to the target. The damage equals five plus twice his or her cleric level. This is pretty cool, especially if you have things that you know take more damage from like necrotic damage there's not a lot of creatures that have resistance to that except for the undead so early level this is fine um 
for from a dm perspective if you're running a kind of like recurring villain or just villain character in general uh they're probably going to be at least you know like a seven eighth or tenth level cleric probably so this could be a very deadly channel divinity ability yeah as a dm i think running a death cleric as a bad guy is cool i just don't know that i would let my players run this when the grave cleric is there um all right uh at sixth level they get inescapable destruction uh necrotic damage dealt by the character's cleric spells and channel divinity options ignores resistance to necrotic damage this is really cool um you know because if people have magic items or if you're fighting against creatures that are resistant to necrotic damage you know this this bypasses that at eighth level they get divine strike and it's necrotic damage and then at 17th level, they get Improved Reaper. When the cleric casts Necromancy spells of 1st through 5th level, that target only one creature. The spell can instead target two creatures within range of within five feet of each other. The spell consumes its material components. The cleric must provide them for each target. I don't know who's running games with material components these days, but if you are, you need them. Um, that's like a whole other show as far as like how complex you want to make your games. Uh, Evan, any thoughts about the death domain cleric? Uh, I think, like you mentioned, it's basically designed for villains. Um, I feel like, I mean, it's you basically said it already. If you're a PC who's thinking about uh, using it, just use the grave cleric. Um, but I mean, if your heart's set on it, it's there's a you know, reaper ability is kind of cool, but uh. I just really think there are better options mechanically and roleplay wise. I mean, it's really key to being an evil. Although, then again, if you're playing in an evil party, so. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I could only see yeah. this kind of coming up is either it's a DM villain for the party to be fighting against, or you're probably running an evil campaign and the player just likes the flavor of being a death cleric versus a grave cleric. But. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up is the knowledge domain. And if you missed it, we recorded the Bard episode at the end of December, and I <laughs> highly recommend you go and check that out. Uh, but if for some reason you have your heart set on being a cleric who's also good at skills, uh, the knowledge domain might be for you. At first level, you learn two languages. You also become proficient in your choice of two of the following skills, arcana, history, nature, or religion. Uh, Quick note, uh, two of those are already on your skill choices from being a cleric, so really only Arcana and Nature are getting added to skills that you could learn there, but you're becoming more of a skill monkey. Uh, the best thing is your proficiency bonus is doubled for any ability check you make that uses either of those skills. So if you want to be really good at history and religion or Arcana and religion um, or Nature and religion, you're the cleric. You need to have religion as one of your spells. Uh, or as one of your skills, uh, you get to double up your proficiency bonus on that. So that's pretty cool. At second level, you get channel divinity, knowledge of the ages. Uh, as an action, you choose one skill or tool. For 10 minutes, you have proficiency with the chosen skill or tool. This is really cool um, role-playing wise, especially if you're like in town and you need somebody to be proficient in something that nobody else in the party is proficient in. Um, 
but again, it's only for 10 minutes. So it's not like you can like go to the grand ball and be proficient, uh, you know, in persuasion for, you know, the whole three hours or something. Um, <clears throat> at sixth level, uh, you get channel divinity, read thoughts. Um, you can re you can use your channel divinity to read a creature's thoughts. You can then use your access to a creature's mind to command it. Uh, choose one creature that you can see in 60 feet of you. That creature must make a wisdom saving throw. Creature succeeds on the saving throw. You can't use this feature again until you finish a long rest. If the creature fails its save, you can read its surface thoughts. Um, when it is within 60 feet of you, this effect lasts for one minute. During that time, you can use your action to end this effect and cast a suggestion spell on the creature without expending a spell slot. Target automatically fails its saving throw against that spell. So this is a uh, this is like a nightmare for DMs because it's like, what is it thinking about? Like, uh, you know, and then and then the suggestion comes in. It's actually kind of a cool thing, but the way that it's worded, it's just so complicated. It should have been something like, like, you know, use your channel divinity to cast suggestion and you gain advantage on the. Or, you know, the creature has disadvantage on the saving throw or something instead mm -hmm. of all of this gobbledygook. But it is what it is. They have potent spell casting. Uh, whatever. You're not going to pick this class. Uh, visions of the past. Starting at 17th level, you can call up visions of the past that relate to an object you hold on your immediate surroundings. If you spend one minute in meditation and prayer, then receive dreamlike shadowy glimpses of recent events. Can meditate in this way for a number of minutes equal to your wisdom score and must maintain concentration. Fine. You can do object reading or area reading. You can only use this. You can use this once per short or long rest. Um, holding an object as you meditate, you can see vision of the object's previous owner. After meditating for one minute, you learn how the owner acquired and lost the object, as well as the most recent significant event involving the object and that owner. The object was owned by another creature in the recent past. You can spend one additional minute for each owner to learn the same information about that creature. Okay. Like, I don't know. Is this... It's it's like, kind of garbage. I mean, this yeah. is seventeenth level. It's just like, what are you doing? I can focus on this object and, and know, know who, who had it and what happened around me. Which is really, you're just making extra work for your DM at that point. Hey, DM, right. who else has owned this object? <laughs> right. Okay, everyone, I guess we're going to go ahead and adjourn this session while I come up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what this comes closer to? For this sword. Hey, DM, do you have a backstory written for this sword? Because <laughs> you're going to need it. <laughs> I feel like it would almost be a better use of your time as a knowledge cleric to try and phone your god to basically ask the question of, hey, this thing or this area, what happened here? Can you describe it to me? Right. So you hit it on the head there. The other thing you can do is an area reading. Uh, you see visions of recent events in your immediate vicinity, a room, street, tunnel, clearing, or the like, up to a 50-feet cube, going back a number of days equal to your wisdom score. For each minute you meditate, you learn about one significant event beginning with the most recent this would be really cool if you were playing like a Sherlock Holmes type character. Too bad or, it comes at 17th level. Wow. Like, yeah. it's like, or the other, the other thing as well, it feels weird that it's only back a number of days equal to your wisdom score. Like great. for 17th level, I feel like it should be able to go back 
number you know, of years or potential years. Yeah, like you right. just it's said, like, potential oh, years. What in the last five? Like, if this was like a sixth level thing, then this would be pretty cool. If this was a second level thing, it'd be really awesome. If it was like, oh, I can see what happened in this room for the last three days or something. That would be neat at third level. At 17th level, it's like, this it's is... Joke. This is a joke. This is worthless. Like we have like between you and the wizard, you probably have like eight, eight spells that can do a better job of figuring out what happened here. Like somebody's probably got their invest, you know, or a bard has their investigation skill up to like, you know, plus 19. They can figure it out. Like you don't need this weird meditation stuff. Anyways, knowledge domain. It's a bad. It's a bad pick. Don't do it. Just be a bard. Knowledge domain. Not even once. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. All right. Next up is the nature domain. I would read parts of this, but I could also just tell you that our next class is going to, our next episode that we do is going to focus on the druid. So catch that in two weeks from when you're hearing this one and you can figure out why you never need to be a nature domain cleric. Uh, you get heavy armor, you get charm animals and plants. Uh, you can dampen the elements around you. It's divine strike. You get to pick cold fire or lightning or radiant because you could do blessed strikes. And at 17th level, they get master of nature. You gain the ability to command animal and animals and plant creatures. While creatures are charmed by your charm animals and plants feature, you got that earlier. You can take a bonus action on your turn to verbally command what each of those creatures will do on its next turn. Again, it's just like, goodness gracious, if you need the fox to do something for you at 17th level you are really really screwed at that point uh hold on i haven't given you guys a lot of time to talk does anybody want to talk anybody here gonna defend the nature domain before i move on be a druid command animals is better okay peace domains on my list but i'm gonna come back to that because i have some i have some funny shenanigans to do with that one but next up we're going to talk about the trickery domain uh, this is out of all of our quick rundown classes. This is probably one of the few ones I would say, okay, there's there's room for this here. I I get it. I'm not going to say just be a rogue because a rogue doesn't get any spells. So this is a full spell progression trickery class. They get some fun stuff. First level, charm person, disguise self. Third, they get mirror image, pass without trace. Fifth level, they get Blink and Dispel Magic, both useful spells. Later on, they're going to get Dimension Door, Polymorph, Dominate Person, Modify Memory, all kind of neat trickery things. Um, starting when you choose this domain at first level, uh, sorry, Blessing of the Trickster is the name of this ability. Um, you can use your action to touch a willing creature other than yourself to give it advantage on stealth checks. Blessing lasts for one hour until you use this feature again. That's really good. Um, I'm in a party right now with two people who suck at stealth. And so anytime that we're like, hey, we need to like, let's be sneaky. There's like three of us who are like, sweet, we definitely pass. And then there's like our other cleric in heavy armor who's just like they failed. So this is kind of nice. Uh, they also get uh, at second level channel divinity invoke duplicity. As an action, you create a perfect illusion of yourself that lasts for one minute or until you lose your concentration. As if you were concentrating on a spell, the illusion appears in an unoccupied space that you can see within 30 feet of you. It's a bonus action on your turn. You can move the illusion up to 30 feet to a space you can see, but it must remain within 120 feet of you. 
For the duration, you can cast spells as though you were in the illusion space, but you must use your own senses. Additionally, when both you and your illusion are within five feet of a creature that can see the illusion, you have advantage on attack rolls against that creature, given how distracting the illusion is to your target. This is cool. You can give yourself advantage. Um, it's it's a neat little. If you want to play as Loki, this is this is your your thing here. Um, uh, at sixth level, you get Cloak of Shadows, and as an action, you become invisible until the end of your next turn. You become visible if you attack or cast a spell. Again, this is cool. This is a good. Rogues probably still do some of this stuff better, but it's neat. Um, their divine strike is poison damage. Again, if this feels like they wrote the rogue a cleric domain, they did. Um, and then at 17th level, you get improved duplicity. You can create up to four duplicates of yourself instead of one. When you use invoke duplicity as a bonus action on your turn, you can move any number of them up to 30 feet to a maximum range of 120 feet. Let me just say this about the improved duplicity. You have to be able to see it. It has to be within 30 feet of you, and it only lasts for one minute. It's really cool in combat, but I wish that this had more roleplay stuff because I love the idea of like using your duplicity, casting invisibility on yourself, moving somewhere else, like, you know, sneaking in somewhere. You know, I think that that would be really neat. But oh, yeah, I could definitely you know, see the in, roleplay benefits of a trickery cleric and as well the combat benefits of it. But the one thing that kind of comes to mind to me of what probably does the, this concept better is the echo Knight for fighter. Yeah. It's very cool that there's all of, all of these domains that we're talking about here at the end are really, it's not that they're terrible domains. It's that another class does this and it does it just better. fine like just or, better or yeah. much better in in most cases all right the best oh go ahead joe go i was ahead. just gonna go with uh saying that the benefit of going with you know one of these domains as a cleric is you get all the cleric spell casting if you have just a little bit of a you want to fill a little bit of a niche role without being you know to pay the spotlights on me some of these other the ones we've just rattled off could fill that role. Also, I mean, I guess for people who are like, I desperately need to be able to hit things with a mace, like, and I, so I just can't be a wizard and I can't be a sorcerer. Like, I guess that the Arcana cleric makes sense for them. But like, for the nature one, it's like, man, just be a druid. You get healing spells. For the Arcana one, it's like, be a wizard. You you can get healing spells as a wizard. Like, so it's just, I, I don't know. It It is what it is. Um, last but not least, I want to talk about the peace domain and, uh, it's a complicated domain. It's not broken unless your entire party decides to be broken. So let me go through this and then I'll explain the brokenness of it. Um, so at first level, you gain proficiency in the insight performance or persuasion skill of your choice. So that's great. You can kind of be the face of your party. Uh, you get emboldening bond. Uh, you forge an empowering bond among people who are at peace with one another. As an action, you choose a number of willing creatures within 30 feet of you. Uh, this can include yourself equal to your proficiency bonus, which at first level is two. You create a magical bond among them for 10 minutes or until you use this feature again. 
While any bonded creature is in within 30 feet of another, the creature can roll a d4 and add the number rolled to an attack roll, an ability check, or a saving throw it makes. Each creature can add the d4 no more than once per turn. But that's still once per turn. So that means like every attack plus d4 for two people in your party. Pretty powerful, pretty good. Not not super broken, but still really good, especially at first level. You can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and you gain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. So that by itself, not super broken at first level. It's a nice boon. Uh, Balm of Peace is your second level channel divinity. Uh, you can use your channel divinity to make your presence a soothing balm. As an action, you can move up to your speed without provo provoking opportunity attacks. And when you move within five feet of any other creature during this action, you can restore a number of hit points to that creature equal to 2d6 plus your wisdom modifier. A creature can receive this healing only once whenever you take this action. Still really good. Uh, it's like mass healing at second level. Uh, I mean, 2d6 plus, you know, two or three. So you're looking at, you know, minimum like four or five hit points. Like pretty solid benefit here. At 6th level, you get Protective Bond. The bond you forge between people helps them protect each other. When a creature affected by your Emboldening Bond feature is about to take damage, a second bonded creature within 30 feet of the first can use its reaction to teleport to an unoccupied space within 5 feet of the first creature. The second creature then takes all the damage instead. 8th level, they get Potent Spellcasting. 17th level, they get Expansive Bond. The benefits of your Emboldening Bond and Protective Bond features now work when the creatures are within 60 feet of each other. Moreover, when a creature uses Protective Bond to take someone else's damage, the creature has resistance to that damage. So that, that just, man, if you're like a, if you've got like some kind of tank in there, like you're in good shape. So when I first read this, I didn't think there was anything broken about this. But here's where it gets really dicey. So as you level up as a cleric, your proficiency bonus goes up, which means that you start adding more people into your bond. Um, and so uh, I believe it's six level when you get your your next bond, your proficiency bonus at that point is plus three. And at ninth level, it goes to plus four. So basically at ninth level you can have your your whole party within the this bond um and that means that everybody can add a d4 to any attack roll ability check or saving throw it makes which doesn't seem super great considering like some of the stuff that the bards can throw down there but also remember that they just get this for 10 minutes. So you're talking about an like basically an entire encounter or even before or slightly after it, they can just keep using a D4 on their different checks, saving throws, attack rolls, like so possibly even multiple sections of a dungeon, they're getting this. And you're not burning any actions to keep it going. But at sixth level, the protective bond is where your party can start breaking things. Um when they're about to take damage, a second bonded creature within 30 feet of the first can use its reaction to teleport to an unoccupied space within five feet of the first creature. The second creature then takes all the damage instead. So how this ends up getting broken is you 
attack each other with unarmed strikes and before people take that damage other creature like other party members can jump over to where you are to take that damage but they can teleport out of harm's way as you're doing that and so what this does is it's super complicated but if your party wanted to you could essentially have three people at six level bouncing around each other and teleporting out of harm's way or into like specific positions to gain advantage and stuff. Um... And so it's not right there. There's a light clicking. So again, this isn't something that the peace domain cleric can break by himself. He needs his party to kind of go along with the breaking. And it just leaves the dirtiest taste in my mouth because yeah. one, it means that like your peace domain cleric is like fully quarterbacking like each encounter where this where the bond is in place. Like he's got to be communicating to everybody. Okay, you do this. Now you do that. Now now I'm going to do this. Okay, wait. Now you hit me and I'll jump over there. Like you know, um, or if you hit me, then the barbarian can come over here and then the rogue can go there. So there's a lot of like tricksy stuff that you can do. Um, some people are like really volatile. They're like ban this class, never use it, blah, 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 blah. I would say that you need a very malicious player with a very malicious party who like hates the DM and doesn't really like D&D very much to break the game with this. Um, but in the end, I actually don't think that this is a very good class on like a very good domain unless you are breaking it. And then once you have broke, once you're breaking the game with it, then it's really broken because um, everybody's getting a plus D4 to all of their attacks and they're moving around, gaining advantage, um, you know, jumping out of harm's way, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, so I don't know what what do you guys think, Evan? We'll start with you, and then Joe, you can give me your thoughts. I mean, if you're just doing it to break, I mean, I, I, my whole thing is if you're just doing it to break it and exploit it, why are you even playing D and D? Why are you even rolling dice to begin with? Right, just go write your own power fantasy story. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it feels like there's so much setup necessary to kind of pull off those shenanigans that like maybe for a one shot, it's like, Hey, this is kind of a cool little concept thing to kind of throw out there, but not really use it as the, you know, the, 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 um, the Swiss army knife for every encounter from there on. And granted, rules is written the peace domain does actually sound kind of good in the sense of like the emboldening bond yeah you get effectively a free bless without it being blessed because now you can stack bless on those the bard inspiration can also go and get in there and you can always use all these additional dice to make sure hey i'm always hitting or we're not failing any you know saving throws uh that are being thrown at us takes a lot of investment to pull it off but it doesn't seem too bad yeah i i think that if you throw a bard into your party and mix them into this then all of a sudden you're getting inspiration if you have like um 
you know somebody else who has uh bless as a spell like all of a sudden you're getting like a lot of stacked mot dice on top of your attack rolls like and you know you're basically you can you can get to a point where you're guaranteeing that your barbarian hits with every roll um you know with every attack so there's some there's some shenanigans here but again what i'm saying like what i struggle with when the people are like i hate the peace class it's like well you really have to have your entire party decide hey we want to power build our party to break the game so i'm going to be a bard and you be a peace domain cleric and you be a barbarian with the bear avatar or whatever like and and then you can do it but for me it just feels like why would you do that like who wants to play that game i don't know and if you're the dm and you see a peace domain uh cleric in your game and a bard and a barbarian with the bear totem uh archetype i would expect I would start throwing much harder encounters at your party than you oh, play. hundred percent. Like, because yeah. like, they're messing around with you and you just start messing with them, start charming people, start, you know, start doing stuff that really is hard for players to overcome. As, as I've said to my players before is like, yeah, you're, you're asking for something that's probably a little bit, a uh, little bit gray area and all. Yeah. We could, we could totally rule in your favor this way. Just know it will probably come back and you will be very butthurt about it because, oh, hey, the enemies are counterspelling our stuff. What the heck? Yeah. All right. So those are the 14 cleric domains. Uh, there's nine in there that we liked uh, or felt like there was a, a place for them. Uh, five or six others that are OK. Um, guys. Final thoughts about the cleric before we wrap this show and call it a night. Joe, we'll start with you, man. I love it. Clerics are one of my favorite classes to play. Nice. Evan, any final thoughts tonight? Uh, I really like the cleric class. Uh, you got to have somebody to do the healing and bring the dead players back to life. It's it is essential. Um, OK, well, thank you all very much for dealing with this slog of an episode. I know it's been a long time. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. This has been another episode of Monster Soundwave, an unofficial D&D podcast. The best thing you can do is tell your friends about it, tell your family about it, uh, tell your players, DMs about it, uh, get them turned on to the channel. You can download us anywhere that they listen to their podcasts, except for iHeartRadio, because who does that? Um, Anyways, we will be back in two weeks. We'll be talking about the Druid. And then after that, we'll be... Uh, I think we might just go straight to the fighter, but we'll have to see if anything big happens in the world of D&D. So until then, thank you so much, and enjoy Dungeons & Dragons.